Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Taini. We've got quite a few things to go through today. Got a couple, got a story about Shimano. We're going to talk a little bit about the invention of the quick release by Tulio Campagnola. And we're going to talk about what it's like to drive as a race mechanic. So let's get started. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the quick release. So we left off last time when we were talking about Tulio Campagnolo uh, on Croce Done. Uh, he was paralyzed by the cold. He later recounted that working on the nuts, uh, the wing nuts, which is what we used to use to remove rear wheels, uh, his hands began to bleed and the wheel wouldn't come off. So that was when he came up for uh, came up with the idea of the most perfect uh, derailleur in the world, and it would be actually the introduction of the quick release. So. In the beginning, um, was a nut held to the, re- the wheel to fix the f- fix to the frame and the fork of the bicycle. Then the technical evolution introduced the idea of gears to bicycles, and things changed. Before the introduction of the derailleur to move the chain, it was necessary to remove or at least loosen the rear wheel. Having done so, the chain no longer in tension could easily be moved to a more appropriate gear on the rear hub. Once that operation had been performed, the wheel had to be put back in position and the nut had to be retightened. This situation proved far less than practical. Operating a nut required the use of a tool that was anything but easy to haul around on a bicycle. The change was thus made with wing nuts. Nuts with the addition of extensions that made it possible to loosen them by hand. The practicality of wing nuts also proved limited. Road conditions in the days before asphalt meant the constant accumulation of dirt, not to mention the effects of dampness and oxidation, as well as freezing cold. Such was the situation in which the cyclist Tulio Campagnolo found himself in 1927 on the road leading up to Crocedone. Right there, the idea began taking shape in his mind for the device that is at the heart of the Campagnola patent, that opened the way to a new age in bicycle mechanics, the quick release. Tulio knew that screwing and unscrewing was not the most practical solution for a hub that that must be readily manipulated. Far better would be a lever that would release the hub without friction. This quick release mechanism with its sliding skewer and eccentric made it possible to release the hub without friction. A second to open it, a second to close it. Changing gears became easier. Although no longer necessary for changing gears, the quick-release mechanism has remained conceptually the same. When we see a racer quickly change a wheel, he is able to do so precisely because of that mechanism. The skewer inside a hollow axle with the easily operated lever. The same lever still bears the Campagnolo logo. Now, as a mechanic, we all know how a quick-release lever works, but we also know that quick releases are not all created equal. And in my experience over the years working on bicycles, I found that Campagnola quick releases were not the best when I first started working on bikes. Um, I found that Mavic quick releases also were not the best because they often would break um, when you were trying to close it with your hand, with your, your palm. I had one break right in my palm, right in the middle of the lever. Um, I'm sure that's probably happened to a few of you. Um, and the Campagnola uh, quick release just didn't have uh, a great feel when it was closed, at least to me. So 
Um, the best quick release that I feel like I've ever used was probably a Shimano quick release. It had a better feel um, when it closed, um, kind of a little smoother action opening and closing. Um, and that's just my experience. You know, you may differ, you may feel the other way around, but that's kind of um, my experience uh, with quick releases. And as we all know today, we deal um, not mostly, but heading that way with um, through axles, which for many reasons are um, a better way to go these days. So um, with that being said, um, talking about Shimano quick releases, we're going to start uh, this week, we're going to do a little, a little bit here on the Shimano story and how Shimano components came to be. So the founder of, of Shimano is Shozaburo Shimano. He was born in 1894 to a middle-class family in Sakai City in Osaka. His mother left home after his father ran away from home. So uh, Shozaburo was brought up by his grandfather and uncle. Uh, he left elementary school at 13, and as a result of that, he was kicked out of his grandfather's house and ended up living with another, with another, in another relative's house. And at the age of 15, he began working in a cutlery factory as an apprentice um, in Sakai. And, and Sakai had, had a tradition as a center of gunsmithing as well as a, a flourishing cutlery industry. So, so kind of as a result of the, the flourishing cutlery industry in, in Sakai, the, the, um, it led to the development of, of engineering and metalworking industry, um, which helped to lay the foundations for the growth of the bicycle industry in, in Japan. Um, and then uh, enter Tagagi Ironworks. Um, they began to pre produce bicycle cranksets in Sakai. And uh, the first president of of Takagi Ironworks told Shozaburo a quote here. He said, the age, of, the age of machinery is about to begin. I recommend that you become a fitter and a turner. So for those of you that don't know what a fitter and a turner is, uh, the definition of a fitter and a turner is, is one who is responsible for studying blueprints, uh, plans, and drawings to be able to construct, assemble, manufacture, and fit parts of machines also responsible for maintaining and repairing different types of machinery. And so the, the Shimano family continued to have close ties to the Tagagi family. Uh, Yoshizo Shimano, um, one of Shozaburo's sons, his younger son, uh, later, later married Kataro Tagagi's second daughter. After Shozaburo improved his skills by working for several factories, he sought to go out on his own. So with a friend as a business partner, he founded Shimano Ironworks in 1921. Um, in the beginning, the, the only equipment they, they had to start was a rented uh, six-foot lathe. They, they started uh, by repairing machinery. Um, the, the first uh, bicycle component that was made by the factory was a freewheel. They'd, they'd stay up late every day after work and uh, try to come up with ways to better harden steel used to produce freewheels. Uh, Shozaburo was, was known to held, uh, he held to the principle of um, produce it by yourself and sell it by yourself. He would carefully listen to customers and said, quote, how, how stupid are those 
who slip into complacency without listening to customers' voices. He never allowed a reduction of price once he had said it. When he and also when it came to like warranty, he when he was convinced of the validity of a customer's complaint, he would replace it with two new ones. Um, Shimano freewheels became well known across Japan, and exports increased as well by the 1930s. So we fast forward a little bit here to to World War II, and during World War II, uh, the Shimano factory was switched to war production. Um, as recalled by Ryoshizo during the last stage of the war, um, a quote here, on my way home from acquiring some rationed cigarettes, I cigarettes, I happened to look up in the sky and saw a strange airplane approaching. It was an American fighter plane. The rattle of the machine gun fire rang out as clouds of dust from the bullets raised high on the street. It appeared that his father's factory had been targeted. On, on July 10th, 1945, an air raid struck Sakai before dawn. Yoshizo could see the firebombs dropping on the city from an evacuation site. He and the other children had been moved to after the American fighter plane attack six months earlier. Uh, when, when he returned home the next day by bicycle to find his father's factory was devastated, but his house was still standing. Uh, later, uh, Yoshizo remembers listening on the radio about a month later that Emperor Hirohito had accepted the Potsdam Declaration, which was basically surrender for Japan. The war was over. Shozaburo hired an English tutor for his sons, saying to them, English will be essential in the age to come. Yoshizo, the youngest brother, studied English with more enthusiasm than his brothers because he wished to visit America in the future. He was often praised by the tutor for his English pronunciation. Yoshizo often thought to himself that America seems like a great country. He saw American automobiles driven by U.S. servicemen who were present during the reconstruction of Sakai. Yoshizo recalls conversations he had with his father after joining, his, after joining the Shimano Ironworks. His father said, Tell me what you saw and heard between 8 in the morning and 5 in the evening today. After listening, listening, his father would say, Oh, you saw and heard only such insignificant things, did you? He would tell his son he should see the essence of things, and he sometimes complained that his son wasn't able to live up to his expectations thus far, even though he had graduated from a, a university. So, in the future, to avoid another lecture from his father, Yoshizo began to go to the factory to see how things worked there. At this time, he was in the accounting area, having only been working at Shimano for a short time. Yoshizo began accumulating and absorbing knowledge about the company and its products and production processes. Shozaburo Shimano passed away September 20th, 1958, at the age of 64. So after his father, the, the founding father of Shimano passed away, um, his three sons took over uh, management of Shimano. Shozo was 30 years old at the time, Kizo was 26, and Yoshiro, Yoshizo was 23. So, some, so some, someone had to take on the position as Shimano's next president. Um, and even, even senior directors on the board of directors didn't want to take on this job. Um, 
So Shozo, the, the oldest son, um, he was director at the time, um, managing director, said, I'll assume the presidency, but I'll resign from the position unless we see a turnaround in our company's fortune within three years. So by this time, the bicycle industry had, had exited the post-war period of prosperity. Uh, a couple things are happening. The moped was now in the mix and selling well. Um, and overproduction in the bicycle industry um, at a time of uh, declining sales, along with a surplus of inventory, led to bankruptcy of many of Shimano's customers who manufactured complete bicycles. Shimano was in pretty bad shape um, at this point in history. Um, uh, they'd been in the red for about five years. So uh, apparently other companies in the industry recommended that Shimano call it quits. But Shozo decided they would try to right the ship. Also, Shozo also declined an offer from Honda Motor Corporation to bring Shimano under its wing. So they, they started to set goals to improve and modernize the, the sales system, uh, develop technologies uh, to produce high-quality products, um, and to expand their exports. Uh, Shimano... Uh, hopes were placed on their three-speed internal hub at the time. Um, it had pre performed well and it had a steady growth in sales. It was time to extend their market and there was there was lots of talk about uh, competing in the European market or in the U.S. Um, Yo Yoshizo took a trip to Europe um, now on Shimano's board of directors uh, to see if it was uh, viable to enter the European market. Um, he was there for a while, and he, he basically discovered that Europe would be a, a tough market, uh, given ha that it had a, an established bicycle culture, and many bicycle component and complete bicycle manufacturers who had been in business for a long time already. So it was, it was decided at this point that it would be too difficult to enter the European market. Um, so on the other hand, um, the U.S. had a relatively short history with bicycles at the time, and since Yoshizo spoke English well, he was chosen as the one to lead Shimano into the U.S. market. So on July 1st, 1965, uh, Shimano American Corporation was established in New York. Uh, in the beginning, it was only three staff members. Um, so that's kind of the, the beginning of Shimano and a very interesting... Uh, story how it got started and uh, actually made it through the war and uh, we know kind of where Shimano is today and we will cover um, kind of how they got to where they are today um, next time we'll do probably this story is probably going to take about three parts so this is just our first part and uh, we'll continue on uh, part two next time so at this time I, I would like to kind of take a moment and talk about um, uh, bicycling in general and how how good it is for you. Um, so I had a friend uh, from work um, gave me a book. It's called uh, It's Bicycling, a Golden Guide. And it's a, kind of a cool little handbook. Uh, they did a lot of golden guides um, uh, in the same way. And this is just kind of one of the, the golden guides about bicycling. And I, I found this one page that, that I thought was kind of cool. And I just thought I'd read it to you. Um, it's called uh, Bicycling for You and for Everyone. Um, now, given uh, this, this publication is uh, from uh, Western Public, uh, Publishing Company, uh, 
Racine, Wisconsin. Um, it looks like the year of this publication is 1972. So here we go. The pleasure of bicycling, the pleasures of bicycling are too numerous and too personal to explain to those who do not already know. If you are not a bicyclist now, it is never too late to start. Get a bicycle and experience for yourself the joys of bicycling. You will, you will find out fast how, how fit bicycling can make you feel and how you will enjoy getting where you want to go by your own muscle power. You become the engine for a machine that can take you anywhere you want to go. Bicycling is both a form of exercise and a means of transportation. It is unequaled in versatility and adaptability. You can use your bicycle routinely for commuting or for doing errands, accomplishing what has to be done while at the same time getting the benefits of a regular physical fitness program. On weekends, you can take recreational rides, tours through the country. After a few months of this conditioning, you are in shape for a vacation jaunt of hundreds or even thousands of miles. Bicycling is, is not necessarily competitive. You do not have to win to get its benefits or to feel that you have mastered the sport. Though you can, you can set various goals and gauge your performance, age is not a limiting factor in this sport. For bicycling is not abusive. If you are, if you are young enough or in good condition, you can, you can sprint at a lively speed. If you do not feel up to the fast pace, you can ride leisurely. Bicycling adapts to your personal needs and demands. It can be purposeful or recreational, competitive or passive, individual or social, and filled with as much excitement and sense of accomplishment as you desire. Whether the wind is at your back or from the front, bicycling is great sport. There you have it. It's confirmed. Bicycling is awesome. So the idea that bicycling is good for you is is kind of if you ride a lot you kind of know that you know that when you go for a ride you kind of you kind of feel good after you do it for a lot of different reasons but there's some actually some some science behind this and until recently uh it wasn't really being studied a whole lot but but now it is and it has to do with um with with forward motion uh self-propelled forward motion um and there's a lot of studies done on this by um studied by uh, this doctor out of uh, Stanford, um, Stanford Medical School, um, Andrew Huberman. Um, he's a neuroscientist uh, in the Department of uh, Neurobiology. He's a tenured professor there. And you can, if you look up his name on Google, you can find him uh, doing some YouTube uh, stuff on YouTube, some interviews and stuff. And it's really interesting. And I'll, I'll try not to butcher it too much, but... Um, I do recommend that you go and kind of listen to him a little bit about this. It's uh, it's pretty cool. So the way it works is um, when you move through space, whether it's walking, uh, running, um, in our case, cycling, um, it's it, something happens that's called optic flow. And your brain realizes that these objects aren't moving past you. You're actually moving past them. And, and what this does is surprisingly or not surprisingly if you understand how good you feel after you ride or even run or get outside and walk um, it, it su suppresses the activation of uh, our threat uh, detection center um, and it sends um, 
it sends a signal to the area of the brain controlling uh, dopamine, the dopamine release center, which is um, the, it releases dopamine to reward the effort um, in the face of, of stress. So the idea of, of forward, self-propelled forward motion is something that I recommend that everybody who, who wants to feel better um, in any possible way in your life, uh, get outside and ride, or if you can't ride, then walk or run. But for me, it's riding. Um, so there's that. So I recommend, you know, just kind of going online, checking that out. Andrew Huberman is his name. And it's, uh, it's really interesting. It's some of it kind of went over my head. Um, and I hope I kind of expressed it um, in a decent way there. If not, you can check it out yourself. So there's that you do with that what you want. But I, I think it's I think there's some benefits there for sure. So we're going to we're going to move on to kind of our, our last little story here, which is kind of a, a fun one. Um, and I talked to a few few people about this, a few uh, former uh, fellow uh, race mechanics um, about this. And it's kind of it's it's about driving as a race mechanic. Um, and uh, it's kind of funny. It's, it's interesting because uh, we do a lot of driving as a race mechanic uh, more than anyone else on your team. You will drive the most. Um, except for maybe uh, your counterpart, the uh, the sworn ear, they may drive quite a bit as well. But um, so here we go. So once once a, a fellow mechanic told me, um, I forget who it was, but I think he was working for Motorola at the time. It might have been uh, working in uh, Mexico at the the Ruta Mexico. But um, he basically told me um, that if there was a bridge uh, from North America to Europe, they they would probably have the team mechanics drive to Europe. And this, this pretty much sums up uh, what it's like to be a race mechanic when it comes to driving. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just kind of part of the job, but it's, there's a lot of fun stuff there, too. So if you, if you want to be a race mechanic, you better be willing and able to drive a lot. I mean, a lot. So typically when, when racers and directors fly home after a race, uh, you'll be driving the team car, van, or truck, or whatever, to, to the next race venue. And it won't matter how far or difficult the drive will be. It's a big part of your job to do this. Um, so once uh, while driving from Philadelphia uh, to Boise um, in the Saturn truck with uh, my good buddy Dave Pitts, our team director realized um, after Dave and I had hit the road um, in the truck, we were both driving in the truck, that, that we weren't going to make it for the first stage of the race uh, in Idaho. So unfortunately, we had a cell phone with us and he called us uh, while driving and told us that that one of us had to fly to Boise from the next available airport. So I forget how we decided who would go, but uh, Dave, Dave ended up being the one that had to fly. So so we, we went to the next available airport. They had a ticket waiting for Dave and Dave flew to Idaho and I continued the drive alone. Um, uh, I made it to the cabin where the team was staying at the end of the first stage. So. So um, Dave was there on his own on the first stage with uh, just uh, uh, some wheels and stuff that he flew with. Um, so that was, that was kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, it, it's not all bad because, you know, you get to see parts of the world that you probably would have never seen if, you know, in your regular job. Um, so some of the things that I've done um, uh, with fellow mechanics and other staff members on the way is I've done, uh, I did a swamp boat tour um, in, I think it was Mississippi. Uh, we visited Graceland, um, 
I even got to um, go backpacking uh, one time in the Gila National Forest, um, just to name a few um, excursions in the U.S. alone. Um, although sometimes your stops on your drive will be working stops, uh, like a day gluing tires at a Motel 6 off an interstate. Um, and when I say a day, I mean all day gluing tires, but at least I was outside. So the, the drive can also vary quite a bit. It can be a completely different drive when you have more drivers than vehicles. Um, this is kind of rare, but sometimes it does happen. Um, so one time uh, we were driving um, from, uh, we just finished a race in Bend, Oregon, and we had to head to Jackson, Mississippi. In, we had to be there. Uh, the next race was in four days. So, and there were, I think, uh, we had a car and a truck. So then there were just two of us. So we both had to drive the whole time. So, and if you look at a roadmap, um, there's really not a direct uh, route for this journey. Uh, mind you, there was no GPS for driving back then. So it was a, a road atlas and uh, we had to figure out the best route. Um, in the end, I think it took uh, about three and a half days. Um, and we, when we, when we, uh, when we arrived um, at the at in Mississippi, I remember um, being at the hotel, and then the racers arrived. Uh, they were all picked up from the airport, of course. Um, and I remember one of them asking, uh, said, "said Hey, uh, what have you guys been up to?" And it, it, kind of funny, our answer was pretty much one word: uh, driving. <laughs> uh, Driving uh, to races from your home base or, or from venue to venue is just, just part of the fun. You'll also get to drive um, to the race start uh, from, the, from the hotel and when the race is over, back to the hotel after the event finishes. Um, these drives can be fun, especially if your, your team wins. Uh, but the other side is uh, if the racing gods are not on your side, it could be a long drive. Um, these kind of drives usually involve racers and directors as passengers, which can also be, um, might I say, very interesting. Then there's the driving in foreign countries. Uh, this is the most exciting and stressful of it all. Um, remember uh, back when I was doing this, uh, we didn't we didn't have GPS or cell phones, like I said, and. And oftentimes you'd be driving on the opposite opposite side of the road. Like uh, for me, it was Malaysia and uh, South Africa. Um, that's kind of an experience in and all of itself, um, <laughs> let alone being at a race or heading to a race. Um, uh, once uh, in Europe, uh, the U.S. Uh, when I was with the U.S. national team, um, the Swanier and myself had to drive from Oslo, Norway, um, from Worlds in Oslo, Norway, to a small town in southern France. To, and we had to find the hotel the, the team was staying at. Um, we we knew the the town and the and the hotel name, and that was that was kind of it. I think we had like a, a printed out packet with some of that info on it, uh, maybe maybe with a map on it, but I don't I don't remember. It wasn't a very good map if it was. Um, so we left Oslo, Norway, and when, uh, in uh, I think we were in um, two different vehicles, so we each had a, a van, I think. And uh, we had to take a ferry from Oslo to Germany. And then from there, uh, we had to drive to southern France. Um, so we arrived in the, in the town um, where the race was going to start the next day. 
at midnight. Uh, we couldn't find the hotel at first, but then by chance we saw a sign. It was a little sign. And it said uh, Hotel Arcade uh, with an arrow. And, and we, we, had, uh, we, f- we found the hotel, and this was the, like, the main hotel for the race, I guess. And uh, we had to wake up the hotel owner, and he showed us uh, a map of town and, and where Team USA was housed. Um, we, the team was at the Fast Hotel, and it wasn't even on the map. Um, but with his directions, uh, we were able to find it um, at around 1 a.m., um, the race started, like I said, the next morning. So yeah, that was, that was interesting. So at the, you know, I probably have driven back and forth across uh, the U S probably about 10 times, um, with lots of shorter trips in between. Um, you know, you, you just, you don't realize just how massive the U S is until, until you've seen it, uh, coast to coast. Um, and there's just so many wide open spaces, especially, well, mostly in the West. Um, and it was within these wide open spaces that, that some weird stuff happens. Um, once while working uh, for the U.S. national team, I had some, some free time uh, in the middle of the summer uh, right before our next trip to Europe. So I took the opportunity to drive home uh, to the Bay Area from Colorado Springs uh, to visit family and friends. Um, the drive uh, to California went well, um, visited for a little while, and uh, it was on the drive back that, I, uh, that I'll remember forever. Um, I was driving on the loneliest road in the U.S. Um, about 1 a.m. I believe it was in Nevada, and I knew it was it was probably time to stop and and sleep for a bit. But I just kept driving. Highway 50 is is a highway that crosses Nevada uh, west to east, uh, east to west, and traverses some some deep, long valleys that end um, on a climb over the next hills and to only descend into another valley straight road for the into the next valley there's there's so much there's not so much out there the the towns are small um and seem seem kind of kind of sleepy and quiet so this highway the loneliest road is is one lane in each direction uh, and at night it's it's uh it's very different from interstate with you know with two lanes in each direction separated by a median um and it's it's also open range uh as many signs will tell you, um, for cattle. So back to the story. So I'm, I'm, I'm driving along on my, in my Toyota, uh, four by four with, uh, one of my bikes in the back, uh, heading back to Colorado. And suddenly, um, the little red sedan in front of me, um, swerves and just misses hitting a cow, uh, crossing the highway. So I slow down and swerve as well, uh, dodging that cow, but I hit his friend who was crossing behind him. Um, I hit him hard. Uh, the driver's side wheel took took the brunt um, of the collision. Uh, we pulled over uh, the red car and myself to to assess the damage, and the red car was fine. Uh, my truck was still drivable, um, but the cow was dead. Um, still feel bad about it to this day. It was pretty awful. So, so I was. Um, he was lying. The cow was lying in the road. Um, by now and a and a small pickup truck apo- approaching didn't see him until it was too late and uh, ran into the cow who was already dead and dragged him under the front of his truck until he he came to a complete stop so so the the guy gets out of his truck and runs around to the front of his his truck and sees the cow um he doesn't say anything he just gets back in his truck uh and puts it in reverse uh, to free the cow and then stops and gets out and 
of the truck and, and drags the, the cow off the road uh, into the ditch and drives away without saying a word. And I'm, I was just like, oh, man, what, what's going on here? So it was like a dream or a nightmare. Um, so I stopped up the road a bit and, and went to sleep for a few hours. And when I woke, uh, the damage to the front of my truck confirmed that it was not a dream. So, um, that, that was just kind of a story about driving, you know, I was working for a team, but not, I wasn't driving a team car. So, but one of the strange things that happens, um, in our lives as bicycle race mechanics while driving. So, so what have I learned from driving so much? Um, I'd like to conclude by, by passing along some, some knowledge. Um, so, um, so here it is, my, my best free advice to anyone willing to take on this job or any job in driving, in, involving driving so much. Um, uh, number one would be uh, always bring good music to listen to. Uh, number two is Texas is really wide. Uh, number three, try not to drive late at night if you can avoid it. Get up early and start driving right before the sun comes up. Driving in daylight is always safer. And here's a good one. This is one of my favorites. Number four is use the cruise control as often as possible. And number five, uh, I'll leave you with this. Please don't eat a copious amount of jerky, then drink a bunch of water if you're not planning on stopping for the day soon. <laughs> so I'll leave you with that. And I will thank you for listening to the Bicycle Mechanics podcast. I am Matt Taini. And if you'd like to comment, Send me an email at the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to check us out on the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast at Instagram. Thanks so much for listening.